Very well, we'll be considering Revelation again this morning, in particularly chapter 17, but um, there's quite a little bit of background we need to do to understand the chapter properly and what's going on, because uh, this week what we're looking at really is the final judgment of God on a sinful society, all right? Last week in chapter 16, we looked at the final judgment of God on a sinful world. It was a dreadful chapter, really, because after you'd read that, you were left with a sense of the absolute certainty and the dreadful reality and the complete justice of the wrath of God. And you had to say with the angel of the waters, didn't you? True and righteous are your judgments, O Lord God Almighty. It was a fearful chapter. The seven angels with their seven bowls, and it was just what struck me as I read that chapter was it just bowl after bowl after bowl was poured out. There was no break, you see. It was a continuous judgment. Now, in the past when these seven seals were broken, there was a gap between the sixth and the seventh, quite a lengthy gap. And then you get to the trumpets, the seven trumpets were sounded and there was a gap between the sixth and the seventh. Again, an even more lengthy gap, but this time it's just continuous. And in that coming day, in the day of coming judgment, in the day of God's final wrath, it's a continuous pouring out. And it's completely unrestricted, you remember. Because, you see, when they did the seals, well, what was it? A quarter of the earth and a quarter of the people affected. When we did the trumpets, what was happening was a third of the earth and it was a third of the people. But when you come to the the seals, what we noticed was that it was completely unrestricted. It just went everywhere for everything and for everybody. In the final one, when it was finally poured out, it went up into the air, cast everywhere. So you had it was continuous. The judgment of God is unrestricted and it's undiluted as well, remember? What it said was, it was poured out full strength. It was poured out without mixture. There was no dilution. And more than that, in this chapter in particular, in chapter 16, the final judgment of God on a sinful world, it was very, very personal. God himself was involved in the whole thing. It started with his voice out of the temple. And it finished finally with his voice from the throne. And he says, It is done. From start to the very finish, personal, God himself is involved. Now when we get to chapter 17, and I've been through 17 quite a bit in detail in the past, and I'm not going to do it in exactly the same way at all. Because what you've got in chapter 17 is, it's again another picture of the final wrath of God on a sinful world. But there's something different about it. It's more the final judgment or the final wrath of God on a sinful society, the society of the world, the system of the world. It'll help you to see what's really going on underneath, that the eye of God has been watching over the centuries and the millennia where man has been treasuring up wrath against the day of wrath and righteous judgment of God. It's, being, it's revealing something to us. It's called Babylon, right? And when you've got the picture of what Babylon means, you, you're discovering what 
the society of the world is really like. What the world is all about. What actually motivates it? What is it that's driving it? You know, have you ever asked that crazy question, why, when you read history, it just goes on like a cycle with men in constant rebellion, inventing new ideas of sinfulness, coming to absolute chaos and disaster and ending it, and it all starts again, one regime after the other. Well, when we get to understand the meaning of Babylon, we'll see the underlying forces of evil that are forming and driving the society of the world which will finally come under judgment. Because we need to have a a very clear view of the world in which we live. And that's what I want to leave you with by the time we finish the whole thing. You must understand the society in which we live and have a real view of it. Because we are now actually living in Babylon. We're doing it now. It's the same kind of society. The difference here is the fact that it's reached its final point of evil. The only difference between the society of today and the society that will exist in the final day of judgment is it will have got worse and worse between now and that time. But the character of the thing, the methodology of the thing, is exactly the same. And we need, by the end of this, to understand the world in which we live. And understand the fact that we live in it but we do not belong to it. All right? We're not part of the society of Babylon. We are residents of earth, but actually we're citizens of heaven. We are not of the world, says the Lord Jesus. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. We're left behind in it. We actually live in it. We don't belong to it. We've been born from above, and we're citizens of another society, and we do not belong as part of this world. We never have since the day we were saved, and we will never will be until the day we reach to glory. Understand the world in which we live. Understand that the society of Babylon, or Babylon itself, is not the new Jerusalem. All right? And it never, never will be. Don't expect it to be. And don't think any effort on our part will ever make it so that it will become that way. I mean, if that's what we're thinking is our goal in the world is to sort of improve the world so much that we kind of end up with a a Christian society where Christians are respected and loved and right is sought after and wanted and legislated, well, you know, you're living a glorious dream and I wish it was true. But you're bound for disappointment, you see. Bound for disappointment. There is no way ever that this world will be converted or changed into a scene that is anything like the new Jerusalem. That's not the way God works anyway. What God does when the thing is sinful and it's stained by sin and ruined in the fall, he demolishes it and he starts again. What happened when you and I fell as sinners? What did God do to us? Did he take us and clean us up and make us a little better? Did he renovate us? Or did he rejuvenate us? Did he regenerate us starting again? Did he mend us? Or did he he end us and start all over again? So it will be in that coming day with a new heavens and a new earth and a new city, that other city in the tale of two cities. No, not a Babylon cleaned up and a society improved. The whole thing is removed and God, as it were, starts again in pristine glory and righteousness 
without a single stain in the streets of the city of gold. Fellow Christian, it's a wonderful thing to grasp. And I just say in passing, that's why I do not agree with the notion that the day to come when the heavens and the earth are going to be burnt up, they're just going to be cleansed by fire and then God will use the earth all over again after he's purged it by fire. It's not the way God works. God doesn't renovate, you know. God does not mend. God ends and he regenerates. And when a thing has fallen, it's fallen. I remember one preacher, you know, he said, just think of Humpty Dumpty when he fell off the wall. And he had such a great fall that all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. And God's not going to put it back together again. He's going to make all things new. That's the final triumph of Revelation. Behold, he says, I make all things new. So, in order to understand and get the lesson as we're moving this morning, Let's get a clear understanding of the nature and the character of the society of the world in which we live. Let's get correct expectations about it. Let's know our place in it and then understand how we should behave in it. Babylon. That's where we're at. What does it mean? What it means is really and truly a picture of the evil society that lies behind the surface of of this present world and of the evil that is yet to come. Is Babylon, are we just talking about a city, an actual city? And many would say yes we are, but and they're sort of waiting for Babylon to be built or, or to be rebuilt and And then once that's done, and only when that's done, can God come down in judgment. I want to make a point very clearly that there's far more to the meaning of Babylon than that. And there's a lesson for us, not in anticipation of some prophetic program that's about to begin so that we can set a timeline for the Lord to come. There's a lesson for us today in the society which is depicted here. First of all, it's called a city. Secondly, it's called mother of. We'll come and deal with both of those things. I want to deal with city life first, right? I want to deal with city life first. Let's go to Genesis chapter 4 before we go into our proper readings and discover something about a city life. Genesis chapter 4. And you'll discover in Genesis chapter 4 the origin of city life. Remember that God made man and he didn't put him into a city. No, no. God made man and he put him into a garden. He put him into a situation where he was not only in touch with and close by, but could fully and freely enjoy, enter into and rule over the glorious creation which the handiwork of God had produced for mankind to enjoy. Right? Just think about it. Where would you like to bring your children up? In the city or in the country? I mean, how much fun do we have, as it were, or how much time was mankind able to spend with a sense of enjoyment in the creation of God and glorify God, their creator, when they live in multi-story concrete jungles, you see? That's man's way of society. And it's not God's original way of society. Look at verse 16 of chapter 4. Cain. Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and he dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. Notice that. 
And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bare Enoch, and he builded a city. Got that? Cain built the first city, and he called it after the name of his son Enoch. That's firmly established in Scripture. This was man's way. Cain, who is he? Cain is a man of jealousy. Cain is a man of envy. Cain is a man who's so full of envy and jealousy that he's a man that's full of hate. Cain is so full of hate that hate turns the man into a murderer. Cain is a man who Cain is a man who refused to recognize when he approached God. He refused to recognize the reality of sin and death that came through the fall, and he wouldn't bring a sacrifice that recognized this. He brought the works of his own hand. Cain the man. And such a man, he is under the judgment of God for the murder of his brother. He's a farmer. He's desperate because the earth is already cursed through the fall of his father Adam. And Adam fell and we all fell with him and the ground was cursed. But Cain was under a double curse because God said to him, from henceforth, because of who you are, one, I'm going to put a mark on you. And two, more than that, the ground's not going to yield to you when you, when you plant your, your seeds. So in other words, I'm a farmer who dared to offer to God the fruit of my own hands. You'll never do it again, Cain, never. Because the ground won't yield its fruit. Such a man moves into the world and he's frightened actually because he fears all men are going to slay him. He knows he's in a situation where he can't contribute, as it were, in a meaningful way. So he goes outside of it and he creates for himself, right? He creates for himself an environment, a community, a society where, where he can feel safe. You know, he doesn't have to be a fugitive. Where he can feel accepted in a world of his own making, a city. You getting the picture of a city? That's the first roots of it. And from there, the world and its city society grows worse and worse, if you like, until finally the flood and the dreadful judgment of God. Now go to chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11, we get another story. The whole earth was of one language and of one speech. That meant you children, they never went to school and learned a foreign language because there wasn't one. All right? Came to pass as they journeyed from the east, coming from the same area as Cain, remember? Coming from the same area, they're moving out now. It's not one man, it's a whole lot of people spreading out. They found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there and they said to one another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had a brick for stone and slime or asphalt for mortar. And they said, go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. Let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down. Their tower must have been tall, you know. Must have been a long way out of heaven. <laughs> They're trying to get up. Meanwhile, the Lord says, I better go down. They'll never get there. And come down and see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one. They've all one language. And this they begin to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down and there confound their language, confuse their speech. They may not understand. 
one another speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from the thence upon the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Now here we are, building another city. Not one man, now it's a society, a group of people. I just want you to notice a couple of things so you get the idea of this. I want you to notice how they went about all this. They had a planning committee and they said to one another, God wasn't there. They never thought, never sought his advice as the expert, if you see what I mean. The planning committee in which God was never consulted. And they said, well, now let us make brick. We're going to use the latest techniques. We're going to use all our understanding and design and engineering and technology. And continuing in the same vein, they then said what? Let us make brick. Let us build a city, a tower. Let us make us a name. Why? So that us, let us be safe. You're getting the picture? We're not going to be scattered abroad. We're going to be in this community where, oh, we can show who we are. We can display ourselves and we can grasp onto what we have done that will, something that will bind us together in a community of safety. Ever thought about the obsession with safety in the present world today? Absolute obsession. Those of us who are a little bit older, and we're not going to say we're old, though we jolly well are, um, we remember the day when, oh, you know, they built skyscrapers, didn't they? And they walked along the girders 25 floors up and lay down and had a bit of a sleep and had their lunch with no protection whatsoever. I'm not advocating that. But the difference in society is incredible. You know, we can't, can't let our children lick their fingers anymore. It's just such an unsafe practice. Now, this is what mankind's all about, looking after themselves, looking into themselves, leaving God out of the consultation. Self is going to be exalted. God is going to be excluded. There's going to be a binding principle that will hold them all together, and they're all going to be serving the same ideals and the same ideology. And the driving force behind it was what? It was evil. That's what it was. The city of Babel, Rebellion against God, a tower to the heavens, arrogance about themselves, let us, look at me, a name, confidence in human self-sufficiency. That's what you got here. And it's a real tragedy, you know. What's driving them? They want to be something. What man has missed? God have mercy upon them and their blindness. What man has missed is the true significance of themselves. You see, they're seeking significance in themselves. But man has a significance. The scripture makes it very, very clear. Psalm 8. What is man? O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, it says there. You set your glory above the heavens. So you see God in all his glory, filling the earth and above, far above the heavens, when I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man? Where's man's significance? What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you visit him? You've made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honour. You've made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, the sheep, the oxen, the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air, the fish of the sea. 
whatsoever passes through the paths of the sea. Man has a God-given significance. He's the apex of creation. He's far above all other created things. He's not the top of the evolutionary chain and merely the ultimate mammal. He is the handiwork of God made in the image and likeness of God. That is man's significance. The only thing above humankind is Christ himself. And he's far above. (laughs) Blessed be his holy name. So you see... Babylon, or the city, Babel, whatever. The same kind of thing exactly. It's representing a society that says no to all of that. They say, sure, we want significance. I want my identity, you know. We're always on about our identity, aren't we? That's a new language of the day. We want our significance, all right, but we don't want it in God. We don't want it anywhere else but in ourselves. We certainly are not going to submit to being a reflection of the very image and likeness of God himself and thereby by being what he has made us to be will be actually a show of his glory. The world says, mankind city says, no, significance in self, glory in self, God not even on the planning committee. We want nothing more to do with him. So what happens? God comes down in judgment. Now, he's going to come down on the same kind of attitude and society in a day to come as he did right back in the Tower of Babel. The difference is this. In the Tower of Babel, as they, were going, as they were determining to gather together in rebellion against God and build that society where he was excluded, the judgment that came down was actually a restraining judgment. He did. He just stopped them doing it. You see that? Now, there's a lot of restraining judgment going on from the hand of God today. But it's different in a coming day when he finally judges. It's not to restrain. It is actually to fully and completely destroy. Can you imagine what happened on the... (laughs) They all got together on a Monday morning, you know, rolling up in their thousands, the workmen, eh? All their plans and all their architects and all their engineers and all their gear. And then, uh, okay, time to start. The whistle blows and they turn to... And nobody could understand anybody. I mean, what confusion, you know? What happens? Oh, they all have to go home. It's all over, and all that's left is a partly built tower, and God's hand has been on it all the time. You're getting the picture now of city life. You're getting the picture of Babel. You're getting the picture of Babylon. And if you want to go further, you can go into Daniel, the book of Daniel, can't you? What was Babylon? Wasn't Babylon the, the, those that were the enemies of the people of God? Isn't that Babylon and what it stands for? Enemies of the people of God. What are we going to read about this picture of Babylon? Drunken with the blood of the saints and of the prophets. Enemies of the people of God. They hate God's people. And Babylon laid siege to the city of God, Jerusalem. Yes, Babylon wanted to build their own city. Can you see the parallels? Whereas in actual fact, God had that blessed city of Jerusalem, the city of the great king, even back in the days of Daniel. And the great king Nebuchadnezzar, as he walked through his palace house in Babylon, he says, Behold, great Babylon which I have built for the glory of my name. Let us make a name. 
Well, Babylon's gone. The Babylon of Daniel, brought down by the Persians. The king who raised himself up to such heights and gave himself such a name, who was actually part of the enemies of the people of God. He's out there in the fields and he looks like some glorified cow, really like a strange creature eating grass like the oxen until he learnt in his own heart that the heavens do rule. Fellow Christian will see it finally in all its glory. The heavens will rule. In creation they declare the glory of God, but in the final day they will shine with a redolent blessedness and glory of the presence of God. The very presence of the coming king. When he comes and every eye shall see him, lo, he comes with clouds descending, once for guilty sinners slain. Thousand, thousand saints attending, swell the triumph of his train. Yes, the heavens, they'll part and they'll let him out like the rider on the white horse, ready to rule and ready to reign. Now you put all that together, right? And you're getting the picture now of going back to the same thought, Babylon. Revelation 17. Turn there. Babylon. See, Babylon has been called a city. There came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I'll show to you the judgment. This is it. This is going to be the judgment of this great society, which is called Babylon, and these dreadful, dreadful pictures that are painted in the vision. John's painting dreadful word pictures of, of the sheer ugliness of what, she, what this city is like. It's called a woman, it's called a city, and it's called a mother. But not mothers as we understand it, all right? Not at all. We'll see that in a moment. But there it is. You, can, you know, the picture is of this great, ugly, brazen, glitzy, glamorous, not beautiful, filthy woman just poising, sitting on this scarlet beast, you know, and she's got a cup in her hand and she's full of herself and she's drawing attention to herself and she's drinking a toast to herself. And in the glass is not any decent red wine, let alone grape juice. It's the blood of all the saints and all the prophets. I mean, it's terrible. It's an absolutely dreadful, dreadful picture, isn't it? But that's what we're going to be confronted with. Now, she's called a city, as we've just noticed. And I've given you some grasp of understanding of what that represents. But she's called also a mother, and that's verse up there in verse 6. Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother. Why, why would the word mother be used? Mother in the sense of associated with everything that's evil. Because, you see, as a mother figure, what you've got here is the one who is the central hub. I tell you, in your family, in your home, mother's the central hub. That's true, you know, fathers. It's all true. She's meant to be. She does rule in the home. And we all know that. The children know that. Everybody knows that. The wheel goes round. <laughs> Why? Because there's a mother figure who somehow or other fills up, fills up all the gaps and makes the wheel turn. I mean, we men, we sit at the wheel and we drive the car, but the wheel wouldn't turn. <laughs> You see, the wheel would never turn. Now, what you've got here in the picture of a mother is that the central hub in a society and system that is spawning evil, that's what she is. That's what she is, picture of. 
the central hub in a society and she is spawning, that's the idea of mother, you see, coming out from, giving birth to, flowing because of. None of us would be here if it wasn't for our mothers. None of us. Absolutely none of us. See that? And in this system of evil, in this society that's being depicted, you know, it's, it's very systematized. It's incredibly organized. It's interwoven amongst itself, intermeshed. It's all sort of, it's like a, a spider's web or an octopus with long tentacles. It's just everywhere. And it's all coordinated in this central figure of a mother who is spawning, supporting, nourishing the whole thing and making it go round and round. Think of the old bicycle wheel, you know? In the centre, what do you got in a bicycle? You've got the hub. If you didn't have that hub, you wouldn't have any of that wheel. Out from the hub, there goes the spokes, eh? And then at the end of the spokes, you've got a rim. And then on top of the rim, you've got a tyre. And the tyre, it depends on the rim. And the rim depends on the integrity of the spokes. And the spokes depend on the presence of the hub. That's the whole thing. Without this, as it were, central, systematised, overarching, controlling thing... The wheel wouldn't exist, and the society of evil would not be what it is. But underneath her is what? It's the beast that comes out of the bottomless pit. Fellow Christian, get a grip of the world. A clear grip of the world. Because the world is full of evil. It is actually under the control of Satan. He masterminds the kingdoms of this world. He is the ruler of this world but only under the hand of God and his permissive will. We understand that. All right. Chapter 17, get the picture clear. Just think of it as you go through it in your own mind. In verse 1, she is a woman, but she's sitting on many nations. In other words, she controls. Sit there, she's in control. This is the controlling influence. This is the pervading, overarching system that's driving the thing. And we need to understand it because we'll get caught up in it else. We'll get bemused by it. We'll get fearful of it. And not only that, we may even get entangled in it. Come out from her, come out from her is the final cry for all the people of God. Don't be defiled by it. Don't be deceived by it. Don't be destroyed by it. No. And then you go into verse 2 and you've got the kings of the earth. You've got the inhabitants of the earth and you've got all of these people. They're all there somehow or other wrapped up in this system. And I tell you what, you need to, you need to think seriously about the society in which we live today because we're living now in a global society in a weird and wonderful way. You tell me one major leader, one leader of any major country who you could say is a child of God, who fears God, who legislates in the fear of God. America, Russia, China, England. Goodness me, they can't even live decent, clean, normal, moral lives. Europe. Oh, New Zealand. Australia. (laughs) Excuse me, the jury's out. The jury's out on that one. Until a man who leads and says he's a Christian 
legislates that way, defends God's people and stands up for the cause of Christ, it's a Christian in name only. Please, I'm not saying the man's not a Christian. I'm just saying pray for him, that if he is, he'll have the moral courage to stand in the damning day of Babylonish society against the rising tide of evil that's sweeping globally over a world that has chosen to a society without God in flagrant sin. You see, chapter 2 makes it clear that this society has crossed, verse 2, has crossed every moral boundary. Actually, they don't have any moral boundaries. I mean, I don't know what we're going to hear, what perversion we're going to hear of next. It Can it get worse? Is there no sense of decency? Is there no sense of restraint? Is there no sense of even conscience? How far will man go? You ask these questions. And in verse 3, that kind of situation, circumstance, that kind of society is displaying itself, as we said there, you know, on the scarlet beast. Everybody can see me. I am lifted up. I'm making a name for myself. Everybody can see me. I'm going to do something that will establish my own glory. And it's being done in flagrant defiance of God for this full of every name of blasphemy. You see the picture, you know? We're, we're, we're well and truly on the way. Indeed, that which has driven sinful society has never been any different. It's just that in this book of Revelation, it's being open to, the, to us to understand. And it meant so much to these early Christians living in such a dreadful, dreadful, dreadful world where also our Lord was crucified. I mean, how do you think they felt when they read this and they looked at Rome? thought, wow, that's Babylon for you. As they looked at Caesar and the ruling of Caesar and the cruelty to the Christians as they were burnt, as they were fed to the lions, oh, they understood what Babylonish society was all about. And as I said before, we've lived in a bubble. We're faced with the reality of what really is in the world. And fellow Christian, we need to learn what the Bible teaches us here and why there has been a revelation because there's a lot of things we never would have dreamt of and never would have thought of and never would have known but he's revealed them to us so that we know the world in which we live. We understand why we are here and the work which we have to do to shine the light in the midst of the darkness to be the salt of the earth and to be the light that's set in the world. So that's verse 3. Display self flagrant defiance of God, fully supported by the scarlet beast which comes out of the bottomless pit. It's incredible. Then in verse 4, where you see her really all decked out and all dressed up and all so vulgar and all so absolutely abominable, and what you have there is it, flaunting, self-indulgence, excess and flagrant defiance. And then you get to verse 5 and you say... Upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery. Mystery. You see, it, it does leave you spinning a bit. Why generation after generation never learns the lessons of the last generation? I mean, why does the world go around in a big circle, in a cycle really, just repeating sin after sin after sin, evil after evil after evil, believing the same lies just with a different coat of paint on it all the time? I mean, I don't know. They don't teach history in schools anymore. It's a great pity, isn't it? 
I mean, I'm so glad I learned history because you just see the constant cycle of what's going on all the time. And he says, well, I'm going to reveal to you that there is underneath all this, underlying all this, arranging all this and motivating all of this, causing all this, there is a centre point. And that centre point of organisation is supported by Satan and organised by Satan himself. You see, we're wrestling not against flesh and blood but against principalities in power, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, systematized, organized, deliberate armies of evil and fallen angels under the hand of that which comes directly out of the bottomless pit. That's it. So there it is, a system of self, of power, of godliness, with no moral boundaries, linked hand in hand with Satan, the ruler of this world, And she sits there later on and she says this in the middle of all that filthy morass, that vile stench. She says, ha, I will rule. I will never mourn. I will never mourn over what I've done. I will never mourn over who I am. I will never mourn over what I'm going to do. Well, she says, I sit as a queen. I rule. I'm no widow, I'm not in mourning. Hand in glove made a pact with the devil himself. You get it? In defiance of God, I will be what I am, she's saying. And she celebrates it. I don't know, do you remember that Q&A session with ACL? And Remember Martin was honoured and there was a politician there who was a gay politician? Well, he said, if it's a question of repenting of my gay lifestyle, I Never will. I sit as a queen. I will not mourn. I will never grieve. See, that's the reason in chapter 16 why you keep seeing why God moves in judgment. They will not repent. Over and over, they never repented. Over and over, they never glorified God. Over and over, they blasphemed his name. And so you got to the end of that chapter 16 and you said, God's right. If sin is ever going to be dealt with and put away, it's got to be absolutely destroyed once and forever so it never raises its head again. That is what happens to Babylon. Later in the chapter 18, no more, no more. The voice of the bride and the bridegroom, no more. The sound of the merchant, no more. The grinding of the mill, no more in thee. Gone, like a great stone cast into the ocean. There's just one mighty splash as it falls and then it goes gurgling to the bottom and it's to be seen no more. Is that enough? Well, just one point. Verse 6, we haven't done. I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints, with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And I saw and I wondered. See, remember this. This society hates the Christian. Do you understand that? Don't think you will ever engender the love of the world. I read a very interesting uh, article by one of the journalists. Uh, wasn't that many months ago. And he actually had the, I was going to say, the high to write, the biggest threat to progress in the Western world is the presence of fundamental Christians. You say, what a cheek! But you know something? He's dead right. He is dead right. If we're not the soul of the earth, then we ought to be, because that's what stops putrefaction. It stops the meat going on the smell, you see. stops the rot. 
There is that which restraineth. And the Holy Spirit is here holding back the final forces, but in the presence of the Christian and in the presence of the church, it's one of those restraining influences. The man was right. We're the biggest problem. The true Christian is actually the biggest problem to the progress of the woke society. Let us be what we shall be, what we should be. Let us understand our role and place in the world and be faithful to the Lord, for he was the one whom they crucify when they say, we won't have this man to reign over us. We follow in his steps. You see, everything, this is the problem. They hate us because everything about us is different. She says, I rule. What are we interested in? We're only interested in one man ruling, one man, and it's Christ alone. He's the prince of the kings of the earth, it says in Revelation chapter 1. Lo, he comes with clouds. Every eye shall see him. Revelation chapter 1. That's who we're interested in having to rule. Self-exaltation, yes. Let us make ourselves an aim in this poor world of sin and shame. No, no, no. There's only one name we want to see exalted. And at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. What a day it'll be. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's why at the end of this book you'll say, even so, amen, come Lord Jesus. That's what we look for in all its splendour, in all its hope and its glory. See, this is, I mean, what do we do? Do we, are we part of this indulgent life? This, this life of no boundaries, this life of self-indulgence. No, what is, what is it? how are we described in Revelation? We are they that keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. You know, you're going to buy a T-shirt and put a thing on it? Well, put that on it. (laughs) I'm someone who just wants to keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. I tell you what, it will raise hate, it will raise ire, it will raise scorn, it will raise mocking. Why? Because you're shining a light. You're convicting of sin. You're pointing to a different way. A different way it's not to be we are different we belong to another country we're citizens from above we're here as ambassadors for christ we're here on business for our king the root of the hatred lies in the fact that the lord jesus said they are not of this world even as i am not of this world again i was quite struck last week looking at an interview with andrew bolt on the uh Oxford University in England, there's a society over there, an evangelical society that has a massive youth gathering once a year at the Oxford University, which has been the birth of many a man of God, right? And they had this gathering and this meeting, this conference it was, and it lasted for a day or two. Everything was fine, and then somebody lodged a complaint that they had been so offended that the university, and they were a student there, had actually hosted these dreadful people called Christians. They weren't at the, at the conference or anything else, but they heard about it. And the provost of the university issued an apology to all for the shameful behaviour of what such an act, and it would never happen again. And Andrew Bolt said to the lady who was running it, well, what did you do? <laughs> what did you say to upset them? And I mean, Andrew says he's not a Christian, remember this. And she said, well, and she said what a lovely time they had and how they read the scriptures and how they prayed together and how uh, all the staff were so pleased with them and asked them to come back again and shook hands. She said, I don't know. She said, we were just there to show them a different way of life and to point them to... Ah, he said, stop. 
that was your offence. She sort of my offence? Yes, something different. This is a society that wants unity in the same purpose and the same cause and in exactly the same way. Fellow Christian, we can never join it. Never join it. We're citizens of another country. We're born from above. We belong to another, another city. As ambassadors for Christ, we're beseeching men, be ye reconciled to God. We carry a message of emancipation, which is the power of God unto salvation, that glorious gospel that calls mankind and says, whosoever will, let him come. Let him come. Fellow believers this morning, we've enjoyed that, haven't we? We heard the voice of Jesus say, come unto me and rest. Lay down, thou weary one, lay down thy head upon my breast. I came to Jesus as I was, weary and worn and sad, but I found in him a resting place. And he has made me glad. Would to God, those that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death would see that great light, and they too would come. May God bless his word. And Lord, we bow again, for we are truly thankful. We are truly blessed. We have a true hope of a a true salvation based on a true work, a true saviour. Father, we're looking upward this morning. All things are going to be made new. And our eyes are looking upward, waiting for the dawning of that eternal day. But Lord, keep us, we pray. How wonderful it is that the Lord Jesus himself, as he explained in his prayer before he left, he was leaving us in the world, but he prayed, not only for those disciples, but for all who would believe on him through their, his name, through their word. Father, that you would keep them from the evil. Do preserve us, Lord, every day. Do preserve our families, our little children growing up. Do keep them in thy grace and call them, Lord, one by one and bring them safely into the fold, we pray. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Ghost be our blessed portion this week or until our Lord shall come. Amen.